0: Well, thanks all for coming. Um, thanks to Frank, Gavin, for the invitation. Thanks to Jessica for the logistical help. It's been great. Uh, it's only my second time in Austin, and the first time that I've actually had a chance to spend a little bit of time here, and, and uh, it's been everything I expected, So, and thanks to all of you for coming out today. Um, the title of my talk is Creative Destruction, which is a little clichéd, um, and oh, it's been a little overused, actually. Uh, it turns out... I, I forgot this, that one of my colleagues, Ben Friedman, published a book with that in the subtitle, so I really would look unoriginal if I chose to. So i have to come up with a different title for my book. Um, uh, this is the uh, Glenview Naval Air Station, circa, well, guess. I'm guessing sometime in the 1930s. Those are biplanes, uh, actually. Um, this is what the Glenview Naval Air Station looks like today. That is the uh, Glentown Center. This is in uh, Glenmont. uh, Glenmont, Illinois, not far from Chicago. Um, You can still see that's the the old tower, the old air traffic control tower. Uh, What you can't see is that uh, that's a Carter's uh, children's clothing store that is now in the old airport. So, uh, you know, a lot of this was kind of given away by the title, I think, and by my perspective, but you can tell where I'm coming from here. uh, it's not all bad. I kind of imagine that's Black Friday uh, with the uh, lights done up that way. Um, but of course, there is a different perspective on military spending cuts, and I became very uh, kind of uh, re-engaged this topic uh, in earnest two years ago in 2011 when the Budget Control Act and sequestration heated up, and then it became a hot topic in last year's election. Um, there's uh, you know quite a Wide uh, group of people, including uh, U.S. senators like Senator uh, Ayat. Uh, Governor Romney spoke about it during the presidential campaign. The GOP platform talked about it that cuts in military spending would not only harm our security, but they would also harm our economy. And this is a pretty consistent theme. Um, and uh, Knowing kind of my own experience and looking at the experience, actually the place I looked at most closely in my first book was uh, San Diego, which uh, did uh, experience a d- downturn in the early 1990s after the end of the Cold War, uh, but recovered very quickly and quite well uh, That by the late 1990s was one of the most uh, successful economic uh, zones in the country. So I was kind of skeptical, and I said, gee, that's not necessarily the case. But I also go back to Dwight Eisenhower's famous speech. There are actually two uh, that, I, that I think go together. They're kind of bookends on, the, on Eisenhower's presidency. Most people are familiar with his uh, farewell address, also known as the military-industrial complex speech. He obviously uh, was concerned about the, the power and influence that had accrued to this permanent infrastructure. And again, this is one of the points he made in the speech, that this is a new experience. We did not always have a permanent military, uh, but now we do we need such a military today. We, he, he never questioned that, but he was always concerned about maintaining a balance. Um, and and now I go and I go back to one of the first public speeches he gave as president, April 1953, called the Chance for Peace speech. And and you really do see that this is this concern about having too much money invested in the military would divert resources away from the civilian economy. Uh, and at the end, uh, in the end, really reduced the the, the country's uh, competitiveness. He worried even more than that. He worried about what he called the garrison state, uh, really the the shifting of the balance from the the citizenry to the military establishment and to the government at large. Again, he never questioned the need for it, but he he wanted to strike a balance. You may not be familiar with some of these lines, but you may be more familiar with some of these quotes. Um, uh, It isn't really that surprising that many progressive and left-leaning groups have seized upon these phrases, uh, wrapping themselves not just in the mantle of a respected military man, but also a Republican, uh, talking about uh, military spending and and the the trade-offs. these in particular, my sister, who's a school teacher, an uh, elementary school teacher, she had one of these quotes on her wall, I can't remember which one it was, on a poster, uh, right next to the one that said, you've probably all seen this, um, I look forward to the day when the schools get all the money they need and the Air Force has to have a base sale to, to build a bomber, you know that one? Um, so, so this is, this is the, the, the context. Now, I, I hope it's clear that that's not where I'm coming from here, that's not my perspective, at all, but I do think that the question of the allocation of resources to the military and the proper balance of allocating resources between the military and the rest of the country is a legitimate debate, discussion. <clears throat> Clearly, we need a military to keep us safe from harm, but uh, the argument that goes along with that is that it, is, it has positive economic effects, and therefore that cuts in military spending will have horrific economic effects, I think, is um, is subject to scrutiny, or at least should be subjected to scrutiny. So the question is, who's right? Not just me, but who's right? Is it is it Senator Ayotte or Governor Romney or today's GOP? Or uh, is it Dwight Eisenhower, who t- today, in today's Republican Party, of course, Dwight Eisenhower would be called a rhino. That's a Republican in name only. Um, but this is, this is the way that I think the, the debate should be engaged. and You start with where the GOP came up with the numbers in the first place that said cuts from sequestration result in somewhere between 1 million and 2 million jobs lost. Um, they actually came from two separate studies, mainly, two separate studies done by Professor Stephen Fuller at George Mason University. Um, the first one, uh, actually both of them done on behalf of the Aerospace Industries Association, the leading uh, lobbying firm for the uh, defense, uh, defense aerospace, but also civilian aerospace, obviously. Um, now, just as an aside, so that you can see the statistics, so the first study estimated that uh, cuts of $45 billion, which is roughly what would be called for by sequestration, uh, would result in a loss of $86.5 billion in GDP and a loss of one point, uh, just over 1 million jobs. Then he came back the following year and came up with a separate study that said that all the sequester cuts, not just the defense cuts, but both the domestic discretionary spending and defense spending, would result in $215 billion in, in uh, uh, decline in GDP and a loss of 2.14 million jobs, the reason why I point that out is because the, the GOP spent a lot less time on the second study because if you look at it closely you will see that the l- job losses and economic decline associated with non-defense discretionary spending would have a greater impact than the reduction of military spending. So they just kind of skipped over that one a little bit. Um, around the same time in the summer of 2012, uh, I commissioned a paper by economist Ben Zyker, who scrutinized uh, Fuller, Fuller's work and concluded that his study and others like it grossly exaggerated the harmful effects uh, of uh, military spending cuts uh, in part by ignoring the benefits. And I think this is actually the most important part of the story. There is kind of, I'm not going to get into the weeds, I'm not an economist, but there is some, I think, legitimate questions about Fuller's methodology in terms of the, the Keynesian multiplier he used to estimate the secondary and tertiary effects of the military spending cuts. But the bigger point is that he ignored quite consciously and deliberately ignored the possible benefits that would accrue from reallocating those resources from the military sector to the private sector. And that's what Zeiker went into uh, in his study for Cato. Um, I, I'm just gonna show just two quick charts to try to help drive home this point. Um, is that you can see that over time, the relationship between uh, defense spending and GDP growth is no correlation or virtually none. Uh, whereas here's the correlation between private investment and GDP, a much, much closer correlation. Okay? In fact, that was the only one of the, I think Ben mainly looked at four different uh, variables, and this was the only one that showed a, um, a clear correlation. Um, the other point, just quickly, is uh, that the Zyker study used $100 billion in cuts to defense spending, which is double what was called for by sequestration, but actually was consistent with a paper that Ben Friedman and I wrote several years earlier. Um, and, and just to keep all of this in perspective, um, the, a proposal to reduce defense spending by $100 billion annually would have amounted to two-thirds of 1% of GDP in 2011. Okay? And so, again, the sequester, we, which, which we're talking about, is about 50 to $55 billion. That amounts to one-third of 1% of GDP. Okay? Um, and when I... Give these kinds of talks, I tend to focus on on that point that uh, that the share of GDP that's invested in the military right now is is relatively low. It's about four and a half percent, going down. It's actually closer to four now and approaching. And some people will say get below three by the end of the decade if we're on current trajectory. Um, when I was writing about the '50s, the the spending was just under 10 percent of GDP. So. I mean, Back then it had a much bigger impact uh, and yet we still managed to to survive and thrive in the 60s and 70s uh, despite those cuts. Um, By the way, another study by uh, Harvard's uh, Robert Barrow and uh, Véronique de Rougie of the Mercatus Center came to very similar conclusions uh, as the Zyker study from a year before. So the point of all this is that the economists really agree that the stimulative effects of military spending are certainly offset by the cost of the wider economy uh, and that therefore all other factors being equal um, if we were to, re- to redirect resources uh, elsewhere uh, that we would end up better over the long term. Now, so I generally focus on those two parts. I, I, I quote the economics literature and point to the empirical data. I talk about kind of at a conceptual level the benefits of shifting resources from less productive enterprises to more productive enterprises, factors being equal. But when you talk in the aggregate, even that term is kind of uh, not not very well received in the public at large. Whenever I talk about military spending and military spending cuts, the first question I get, invariably, but especially when I'm speaking on Capitol Hill, is "What about the jobs?" It's the first question I get all the time. And so. I decided to kind of revisit this research, uh, add a number of cases, and look at, uh, kind of augment the economics literature with some stories about what has happened in U.S. history over time when uh, different communities have shifted away from military spending. Um, so here's a couple of the cases that I'm going to look at. Um, I want to emphasize a few points. This, this presentation focuses a little bit more heavily on the base realignment and closure process, the BRAC process. But I do include a number of cases uh, from before BRAC. We closed bases before there was a BRAC. Um, And also I look at a couple companies that either went out of business or closed or relocated factories, and obviously they made that decision for private business interests, not uh, through some political process like BRAC. Um, All right, so uh, a couple of the cases are fairly familiar, I think, to many people um, because they're associated with, in the case of the Presidio, um, uh, a very famous place in a beautiful city, and in the case of Fort Ord, a relatively famous place in a really beautiful place. So um, in the case of Fort Ord, it's still kind of in the process of being redeveloped. Uh, It was closed in 1994. It still hasn't really achieved, in fact, I would emphasize. The uh, projected gain number is, is very much that. It's a projected gain. Uh, the redevelopment of, of Fort Ord has been kind of held up through a whole series of process. But uh, some of it is being used for um, college and university. Some of it has been dedicated as uh, parkland. Uh, and so, again, as someone who I haven't yet visited um, since I started this project, I haven't yet visited uh, Monterey. I hope to get out there in the spring. Uh, certainly, one of my favorite places in the country. People will criticize me fairly for picking some of these cases as being <laughs> places where I like to go visit, and there's some truth to that. Um, uh, certainly, the case here. Uh, so it's still a little bit too soon to say in terms of Fort Ord and Monterey, uh, the Presidio. There's a picture from the from the sky. Here's a little prettier picture, a little more familiar to everyone. Of course, there's a Golden Gate Bridge on the right. Um, by any objective measure. Uh, <laughs> The Presidio should have been one of the most successful uh, redevelopment projects uh, by far, just by virtue of the value of the land in question. Okay? Um, uh, the, the basic gist is that, that the cost of land uh, for, for your house, if you own a home in San Francisco, the cost of the value of the, of the land on which that house is positioned accounts for more of the value of your property than any other place in the country. It's, it's the land it's on, It's very, um, it's, it's, because it's a peninsula, there's not that much land there in the first place. A lot of the land, actually, the land on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge is off-limits to development because it's parkland. There's a lot of other parkland around the San Francisco area. So scarcity, you know how that works, et cetera. Um, the big story of the Presidio was handed over to the Park Service. That was one of the, the key differences, I think, in the Presidio case. Um, it has attracted some fairly famous uh, tenants, including Lucasfilms, Letterman. Uh, they make movies there. Uh, but again, it's still a, just an absolutely beautiful spot uh, in, in a very popular city. Uh, so I think most people believe that uh, ultimately uh, the Presidio is going to be a, a success story as well. I think it's still a little bit too soon to say. Uh, or at least, what I would say, it will end up being a success story. My argument would be it could have been a success story a lot faster, perhaps, if they had made some other decisions. Um, Another place I look at is a little more obscure, perhaps. Um, I grew up in Maine. That's where I'm from. My mom and dad still live there. Uh, So I knew of of all three of these cases uh, as a kid. Um, uh, Arguably, the first one, the Loring Air Force Base, way up there in northern Maine, uh, is why there was a BRAC in the first place. turns out the main congressional delegation inserted some le- language in legislation, riders to legislation in the 70s, that made it next to impossible to close a military base uh, because they reasoned correctly that if there was another round of base closures, Loring would be on the list. Uh, they, they were right. Uh, it turned out that Loring was on the list. It managed to, 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 to avoid it the first time around. It ended up being on the second BRAC list um, uh, but they were in fact closed in 1994. The announcement was made in 91 and closed in 1994. Now, a quick story about the pictures, some of which I took, and I'll show you the ones I took, but um, I did not take any of these pictures, just to be clear. Um, one of my research assistants, Catherine Forbes, Kat Forbes, she did a great job putting this together, and, and I, uh, the gist of it was, Tell me, find me some good news stories from some of these places. Well, the best news story from Loring so far is that Fish, the rock band Fish, has held three f- successful fe- uh, festivals at, um, at Loring. In fact, I have to read this quote. It's just too good. Um, that the most successful Fish concert uh, uh, recorded uh, was 75,000 people in 1997, which made Limestone, Maine, the largest city in Maine, over the weekend. So there you have it. Um, uh, Unfortunately, and again, this is unfortunately, that's probably the only thing that Limestone has going forward, and I'm not even sure that Fish still has con- concerts there. Um, the reason why the Maine congressional delegation fought like crazy to stop this from happening is because they recognized that the chances for redevelopment in Loring, uh, in Limestone, Maine, were very, very low. Uh, another main base that wound up on the uh, uh, fifth, the last BRAC closure was Brunswick Naval Air Station, which is Brunswick is the home of Bowdoin College, um, about 10 miles from Bath. uh, Ironworks, so there's obviously still a lot of military industry there. That is, in fact, the Atlantic Ocean uh, there to the the north. Um, I have some high hopes for Brunswick. I think most people in the community have pretty high hopes for Brunswick. Um, They've made some good decisions kind of anticipating that this was coming along, um, but it's still too soon to say Uh, as to what is ultimately going to be the result there. At the time, when Brunswick closed, it was one of the largest employers in the state of Maine. Um, So I mentioned that Loring did not make the first BRAC uh, closure, but Pease, Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, did. Uh, They were a bit surprised by this, uh, caught them a little bit off guard. And uh, what I've learned, I actually did visit uh, Pease, and what I learned is that uh, that while it is now counted as a huge success story, these statistics actually come from DOD, um, that the number of civilian positions when the base was closed was as low as 400. It's a little misleading, and some of these, many of these statistics are a little misleading because, of course, when the base closed, it had been in the process of a long, slow drawdown. Uh, but by any objective measure, the Pease uh, facility, what, what now occupies Pease, which is an office park, a business development park, um, uh, has more civilian jobs than it did even at the peak of Pease Air Force Base. A couple points, though. Uh, again, uh, Kat uh, came up with the this, this fact that Pease Air Force Base now has a, uh, now Pease Development has um, an airport. And I took that picture, <clears throat> and uh, it's true. They have an airport, uh, but I was there on a Thursday morning at about uh, 10.30, And uh, this is what was happening at the airport on a Thursday morning at 10.30. And that, it was a little weird. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie. It's just, it's not very, the movie The Langoliers, which is based on a Stephen King novel, but... But the premise is that these guys land at Bangor, uh, Bangor uh, Airport, and the, and, the, and the airport is empty. And I had a really s- scary suspicion that I was caught in a Stephen King novel, because that, it was a little creepy uh, to, to be there. Um, <laughs> the, the, the gentleman who's responsible for developing peas is very proud of this airport, in fact. They did put some money into redeveloping it. It's actually rated as an international airport, which is a big deal. You can actually fly in direct. They have customs and all that sort of thing, so that's, that's a benefit. The challenge with Pease at Portsmouth is it's equidistant from three decent, two decent-sized airports and, of course, Logan in Boston. So uh, he thinks that the, the fact that you can park for free is going to be a real selling point. Um, I, I hope he's right. Uh, but so far, uh, that's, not <laughs> that's not the case. Uh, but otherwise, uh, Pease is one of the success stories, and I think that, that people can learn a lot from looking at that case. Um, uh, and, and Pease will tell you, the, the developers there will tell you, Location, location, location. It's a it's a real estate play. The business climate in in New Hampshire is quite conducive, uh, and so they they are feeling pretty good about their prospects. Um, as many as you know, I, many of you know, I uh, went to school at Temple University in Philadelphia, and so I took a special interest in uh, a couple Philadelphia cases. The one that I was reasonably familiar with was the Philly Naval Yard, which was closed while I was a graduate student at Temple, uh, and I was familiar with the debate and the anxiety that was engendered by the closure of the Navy Yard. Um, it's obviously, it, it's, it's one of these iconic structures when you when you come to Philadelphia, um, you, you're almost guaranteed of driving past the naval base from the airport into Center City. Um, you know, some of the great battleships of the age were built there and it can be seen right off of 95. It's, it's again, it's an iconic place. Um, uh, and I think in the early days there was some, some real skepticism and some doubt, but I've revisited this uh, since, and, and it, it's really pretty remarkable what they've managed to do. Uh, they, those statistics are pretty accurate as of this year, uh, and all told, there are about 10,000 people employed, and they actually think their projections put them at uh, 17,000, 18,000 by the end of the decade. So. That would be pretty exciting. Um, they've done a lot of redevelopment. They've been a lot of investment. They do still build ships there. They build cargo ships there. There is a, a shipbuilder that's built, uh, what, 18 ships since, uh, since the plant was closed. So that's pretty significant. Um, I think one of the selling propositions of the Philadelphia Naval Yard is location. It is in a choice, choice location in a uh, you know pretty vibrant city. Uh, a lot going on. There's obviously the educational base there. Uh, Healthcare is big in, in, in Philly and Pennsylvania, et cetera. Um, so I think the, the location argument uh, can, can explain a lot of why Philadelphia has, al- why the Philly Naval Yard has ultimately been successful. Um, but here's a place that I have to admit I never heard of uh, before I started on this project. Here's this a couple more pictures of the yard. You can see what they've managed to retain some of the old structures, but that's actually a community college or part of it there, that picture. Um, so here's a place that I had never heard of. Um, uh, you know, I lived in Philadelphia for quite a few years and uh, had never visited this place. Uh, if you know the city at all, it's basically located. You keep going north on I-95, and right past the Betsy Ross Bridge, which is the last major bridge crossing over the Delaware. Uh, right along the river is this place called the Frankfurt Arsenal, which in the in the 19th century was uh, one of the main places for manufacturing. Uh, cartridges, uh, ammunition, as well as rifles and muskets. Um, and it's, it's a really, and, and even as late as World War II, you can see the statistics, about 22,000 people employed there. A vast property. Um, I, I visited there in August of this year. Uh, take a look. I didn't, I didn't size up this picture properly, because, but if you look at that structure on the, on the right-hand side there, uh, that's what it looks like today. So it's still there, that same structure, the gate. Uh, the the um, the home that is, that was is still there and in in good repair. Uh, this is the home of the basically the, um, the the commissioner of the of the facility back then. That, that structure was retained. Um, so that's how everything looks there. But I, I I started to scratch the surface on on Frankfurt Arsenal and I came across a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the local newspaper, um, explained that uh, employment at the arsenal today is about 600. Uh, so that's, that's well below what they had hoped, and again, compared to about 10,000 uh, in 76. Actually, Walter Mondale visited the Frankfurt Arsenal in 1976 while he was running for president, uh, claiming that if he was elected president, there's no way that it would be um, shut down. Of course, he was, he was, he was elected vice, vice president with Jimmy Carter, and the base was closed anyway. Uh, that, that sort of thing happens. Um, and there's a story in the Inquirer. In the years since the government shut the facility, dozens of businesses have settled into renovated buildings. I think on the one hand, it's fair to look at the arsenal and say it's a success story, says William Hankowski, president of the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corp., which lent $3.5 million to the project 10 years ago. A private developer came in and renovated the property, and it's been put to private reuse, and it pays taxes and has workers and stuff. On the other hand, uh, 600 jobs is a poor trade for 10000 He admits that. uh, a real estate developer, uh, Mark Hankin, who's the president of the management company, which is developing and managing the park, bought the property 10 years ago. Hankin predicted, uh, at the time when he bought it, he predicted it would create 4,000 jobs over the next five years. What happened? He said, well, it turns out to be it's hard to raise money, and uh, the real estate market went bust. Um, all sound familiar? You, you've heard these stories before, right? Hard to get money, real estate market went bust. There's only one problem. Uh, that article was written in 1993, 1993, and this is what Frankfurt Arsenal looks like in August of 2013. Um, it is uh, blighted, there's just no other way to describe it, and they're trying, there's still signs, there is hope that they will develop a park there, I certainly hope that it does succeed, but I think it is a cautionary tale that location doesn't explain everything, because, again, in terms of location, this is a really choice location. It has easy access to public transportation, right easy access to the interstate, right on the river, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they obviously have some challenges. Um, I also took this picture. I don't know if you can see it, but this is a, a, a billboard. They have billboards in Philadelphia. They have billboards in Texas? Yeah. Anyway, uh, a billboard uh, for advertising the Wawa uh, food chain, give me strength. I, I couldn't help, but kind of that, that juxtaposition there was just too good. Um, so anyway, that's uh, one of the less successful stories. I hope to look at it a little bit more. There are things happening at the Arsenal. It's actually There are two charter schools that have been operating in there for some time, uh, so I want to look into that a little bit more, but uh, the early indications are that that's not one of the great shining success stories. Um, as I mentioned, Frankfurt was a pre brac case. It was closed in 1977. Another one was Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Brooklyn Navy Yard was closed in 1966. Um, I took the picture at the lower uh, right, and you can't really see it very well, but, actually you can see it. Um, trust me when I tell you. That right there is the Empire State Building, okay? So you're looking at, out across the East River, uh, the bridge is the Williamsburg Bridge. So the Williamsburg Bridge is to the north and the west, and the Manhattan Bridge is to the east. That's where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is. Uh, I guess they, they call that the Dumbo District, which is down under Manhattan Bridge, basically is what that means. Um, Brooklyn's kind of a happening place, Uh, and I knew this. Uh, This was the first time, though. I visited the facility in August, and uh, there's a lot going on. That's one of the older pictures of the Navy Yard gate, which was rather imposing and not very welcoming. Uh, Now it looks like this. Um, There is security there. There's still a gate. You have to have a pass to get in, Uh, but it's a little bit more welcoming, and for the first time, they opened... The Building 92, which is one of the original facilities in uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is open to the public as a museum, and people can now tour the property on a guided tour. Uh, and, and I think that's what a lot of people are talking about, is for the longest time, the Navy Yard was just kind of this inaccessible place behind this high wall. And there's more opportunity now for the community to interact a little bit. Uh, and you see some of that going on. There are so many great stories from the, Navy, from the Brooklyn Navy Yard um, this is the shipyard that built the battleship Maine, uh, the battleship Arizona, and the battleship Missouri, uh, three famous battleships. It also uh, clad the, um, and put, uh, fitted the guns on the monitor, the first ironclad uh, of the uh, Union Navy. So this is a very famous place. Um, quick, quick side note, one of the last ships that they commissioned at the Brooklyn Navy Yard is, was the USS Austin. LPD-4, um, I, I, I did a little research on what happened to the Austin. It was decommissioned in 2006 and was sold to scrap in 2009, and I believe you could go see it being cut up into little pieces uh, even to this day. So big, big ships take a long time to cut down into small pieces. But, uh, so that's what's happening at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I think there's a lot um, to tell there. Again, this took a very, very long time to redevelop, but there are hopeful signs. The big a shining tenant in the Brooklyn Navy Yard now is Steiner Studios. That's the, uh, the studio that films Boardwalk Empire, Sex in the City, uh, very successful television and, and uh, big screen films. Uh, they were attracted by the location. It's very close, obviously, to the center of Manhattan, uh, but not being in Manhattan, uh, but also vast tracts of land so you can build an enormous soundstage uh, unencumbered by uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, another case from New York, far, far away, is, is Buffalo, New York, Bell Aviation. Actually, in my dissertation and book, I looked at two cases. Uh, Bell uh, relocated in the 1950s from Buffalo to Texas, uh, mainly in the Fort Worth area. Uh, and, of course, they moved from uh, fixed-wing air- aviation to helicopters, which is what they're mainly known for now. Uh, but the other big company that moved from Buffalo... Um, in the uh, mid-1930s was an organi- was a, a company called Consolidated Aviation, which moved to San Diego. And I, I, I always like to emphasize this point. Consolidated Aviation moved from Buffalo, New York, to San Diego, uh, California, not for the business climate, but for the climate climate, okay? <laughs> uh, they were building seaplanes. That was their forte. And they were landing them and testing them on Lake Erie. And they discovered that, yes, in fact... You can build planes and test them year-round. In San Diego, you could only do so for a certain period of time on Lake Erie. In fact, my favorite example is uh, the consolidated vaulty plant when it was going gangbusters in World War II. Um, it didn't have a roof on its factory. It was just open uh, because, the, of course, the climate there is, is there's virtually no rain at all, uh, and it made it for a very, uh, very good place to move. Last case uh, is one that you're familiar with. Uh, You probably don't recognize it from this vantage point. Uh, I snapped a couple pictures when I arrived yesterday on my iPhone. uh, And my initial impressions are that you can get really fat at the Bergstrom airport uh, because the food there is really good. There was live music playing and I've been to many airports in my life and I've never been entertained by a live band at a uh, airport, so that was kind of exciting. Uh, they're big into guitars. I sort of get that thing. <laughs> uh, um, but no, honestly, I, I don't want to make light of this, because Bergstrom, uh, I did add this case fairly late in, my pr- in the process, um, partly because it is such an outlier in the DOD's official statistics. Again, if you look at the percent change, they're estimating about a 470% increase from the decline. Again, the civilian positions is a little bit deflated from, where the, from the peak, but it is true there are over 4,400 people employed there now. It's actually more than that. This, these statistics are a little bit dated. Closer to 5,000 now. What made it work? Well, what I've learned, even just in the last 24 hours, is that the closure of Bergstrom Air Force Base solved a problem for the city of Austin, which is their airport was completely inadequate to deal with the explosive growth associated with the tech sector in the 80s and early 1990s. And they attempted, before the base was closed, to arrange a joint use uh, deal with the Air Force. The Air Force consistently rejected it. And so, lo and behold, when the base was officially closed, the city leaders you know, made a good faith effort to save it, but sort of breathed a sigh of relief when it was in fact closed and said, now we get to have the world-class airport that this city deserves. They invested a substantial sum of money in it, $585 million in, in, to fund it. But last year, they uh, went about 9.4 million people uh, traveled through the Austin-Bergstrom Airport. Uh, so a success story. And again, this is important to kind of keep in mind. I, again, I just learned this this morning, actually, is that a number of airline executives were telling Austin city fathers and mothers that they needed to upgrade their, their airport, but... Don't overdo it, because they were looking at the example of Denver and also Las Vegas as being a Taj Mahal-type airport that were vastly too expensive. Those costs were passed along from the air, air carriers to the customers, and long to customers were not as excited about flying into those airports. So, so I do think Bergstrom is important to keep in mind as a case of not really a problem at all, but a solution to a problem and one that delivered benefits for the community uh, very, very quickly as soon as it was redeveloped. Um, so last picture, that's Long Beach, California, which I uh, will be visiting next month. I've been there a couple times before, but I, this is the first time I'll go there for this project. Um, just a few concluding thoughts. I've already emphasized, you know, in many of these cases we're talking about real estate, and real estate is location and location and location. That is, of course, the case. But timing matters a lot. Um, many of these drawdowns are occurring at the time of a soft economy, which is why they're drawing down in the first place. Um, and so if you don't have a diversified economy or you don't have very strong prospects, uh, that can be an issue. And, I learned again, I learned that very well in the case of Portsmouth and Pease, where I looked at Pease as a, as a shining success story, which I think it is. But but the 90s were rough for Portsmouth. It was tough for them to make that transition because the base was a much larger Uh, part of their economy, Uh, but ultimately they made it work. Um, When you're talking about these statistics, I think it is really important to keep in mind the baseline. Where do you start counting the jobs? Again, if we started counting all the jobs in World War II, that would be really, really misleading. If we only started counting the jobs when the base was closed, that would be misleading, too. I think t- kind of coming up with a reasonable estimate for where the steady-state operations of the base were before they closed is useful, but then looking at where the base is or the former facility is and where they're headed. Um, and the last point is, and I know this is the hardest part of all, but it's something that I, uh, that I believe and it has been kind of reaffirmed in the people that I've talked to so far, is that um, ultimately you have to embrace the change. Uh, I liken the BRAC process to... Um, kind of competitive process in a courtroom, right? The prosecutor and the, and the defense attorney have a job to do to defend their client or to prosecute to the best of their ability to make the best case for acquittal or for conviction. But when it's over and you've made that best case, uh, you don't usually question uh, the legitimacy and the authority of the court. Okay, And I think that those instances where City uh, leaders or community leaders made the best case against best base closure, but when the announcement was finally made, those that embraced the change and adapted quickly and made a conscious decision to adapt quickly uh, have, have had much more success than those who uh, either questioned the process or, or were so kind of committed to holding on to the old uh, that they weren't uh, ready uh, to, to accept the new. So that's the last uh, slide of my presentation. I'll leave that up there. It's kind of a nice pic. I didn't take that picture, obviously. Uh, I'm not a private pilot, but uh, uh, we can stop there. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have um, about this topic, uh, but also um, well, other stuff in the news, which uh, I try to keep up to speed on. Uh, I like to say that as the, as the director as the Vice President for Defense and uh, Foreign Policy Studies at Cato Institute, I can be asked to speak about just about anything on any given day, and that's generally the case. so uh I, I try to I try to know a little bit about a lot of things. So yes, Eugene. Well do you, do you want
1: to take your own questions? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so, I'm fine I'm fine. So we try just to tell you to at least initially uh select students. Ah so if select find, students. If you can find a student that would be good. Okay. Anyone
0: is open. I know he's a student. I'm gonna call on him in a minute. Go ahead, yes, go ahead. The short answer is I don't know the answer to your question. That's it is sort of a small end. You know, even if I did every single brac closure, for example, there about 150 bases that were closed by brac. Um, it'd be interesting to look at that. But I'll give you the case that I, again I just learned about. Congressman Pickle, legendary uh, congressman, represented this district. Uh, uh, was part of the Save the Base coalition, uh, the committee in uh, the early 1990s to stop Bergstrom from being closed. Um, uh, he, did not, he was not voted out of office because he failed to keep Bergstrom open. Let's just put it that way. Um, I do know of a few other cases, again, just from kind of anecdotes and my own personal experience. Um, my, my short answer is it's more complicated than that. Uh, it might have been a factor in some places, but I, I really doubt that it was the determining factor in, in many or perhaps any cases. But, I, but I, it's a good question. I'll have to look at that a little bit more. Um, Good uh, over here. Go ahead, Hans. Um, it's
1: great. Thank you for a very interesting presentation. Um, I have a question about well, sort of research design. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. uh, so I knew he was going to give me this. This is a, okay. I know this guy. He used to work with me. So okay, go go ahead.
1: Uh, well, you know, like you said, it's very difficult to find a baseline, and you know, you know, finding an accurate measure is very
0: difficult here. Right.
1: Having looked closely at the data, is that a lot of these bases were not necessarily in very, uh, you know, in areas that were fit for redevelopment. And so when you have a you know, structural change, <coughs> you, know, you know, the chances of redeveloping are, right. you know, fairly low to begin with. And so you know, you talk about location,
0: uh, right? It's also part of just a broader economic trend, right. Um, I think that, generally speaking, I want the existing empirical research to start form the start of my research, like I start, like it started the form the beginning of my presentation. Okay, is that there is quite a bit of, of economics literature that says, all other factors being equal, if you Cut military spending, it will eventually make its way into the economy, sometimes faster than others. I tend to think, partly because I'm a historian, is that the qualitative measures ultimately tell a different story and augment that other story, don't replace it. Okay? So, I'm interested in the statistics, and I'm willing to scrutinize the data a little bit, as I've already shown you. Where you start, where you finish matters a lot. Um, But I am more interested in the qualitative stories. I'm, I'm interested in the stories. Tell me what happened. You were living here. Tell me what happened. Tell me did people leave? Did people come here? Did they come here because this facility was closed? Um, again, I just learned in the last 24 hours that, that the, the old base, Mueller, uh, Miller Mueller Air, Air, uh, Airport, um, was really inadequate for a lot of different reasons. It was unsafe to fly into. There was problems with the flight pattern that interfered with Bergstrom. There, you know, uh, uh, Getting into the city was, was a challenge, and it was not particularly uh, welcoming, let's put it that way, to people thinking about relocating businesses. So there were real benefits to relocating Bergstrom to, to having the base uh, uh, elsewhere. Um, but I think it's a little bit too fatalistic to say, well... A place like Limestone, Maine, its prospects are are so bleak, how can we expect it to do anything otherwise? I think that's a little bit too pessimistic. I think that there will be cases, in fact I know there are some cases that I'm looking at, where uh, a poor location does not guarantee failure in the same way that a good location guarantees success. And so what are the other criteria, what are the other factors That went into play. One of the cases, one of the things I've realized from a few looking at the Frankfurt case, looking at the Brooklyn Navy Yard case, the best analogy I can come up with is, um, if you build a shopping center in 2007, and you made Circuit City your anchor, uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, that's unfortunate, right? Uh, We had one of those in my own town in Leesburg, Virginia, where I live. That that happened. and you, there were definitely some cases like that where a few of the, re, the early redevelopment attempts latched on to what they saw as a kind of, you know, the, 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 the silver bullet. The big manufacturer that is going to replace the old manufacturer going out. Again, Philly, the early experience with Philly in the mid-1990s was that way too, and it didn't work out. Um, so, so there are more factors than just location. It's not so deterministic, and I'm trying to, to tease out some of those more. Of qualitative measures, qualitative measures, you know, quality of life, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, sir. Uh, all cases are all about domestic military bases. Do you do any studies
1: about U.S. bases overseas and how they were used.
0: I am not um, not because I wouldn't like to visit them because I'm told they're very nice and I have visited a few of them myself, <laughs> uh, courtesy of the U.S. Navy. No, um, the difference is the politics of it. Okay, uh, we did not or we do not have to create a BRAC to close foreign bases, right? Because there isn't the need to develop this kind of weird, uh, kind of locked in, all or nothing, you know, kind of washing out of the system, the inevitable horse trading, all that stuff. Um, The people who object to the closure of a foreign base, by and large, are not voting in congressional districts and therefore cannot vote a congressman out of office for failing to save the base. So I don't look at them. Um, I think there's a a whole different set of interesting questions related to US bases overseas, but because the politics doesn't factor in, that's why I've chosen not to talk about those cases. But I am, I mean, there's a lot of other work being done uh, in other countries about redevelopment of uh, of military facilities. I'm very interested in the experience on kind of comparing different domestic cases side by side, how they've handled it, how well they've adapted, uh, in fact there 's a conference being held next year, uh, which I hope to, to participate in that 's talking about that, looking at other cases around the world and I would present the kind of one of the American perspectives u s perspectives. other student questions or young yes, go ahead sir well, I, <laughs> I guess that see there you go. <laughs> No he wrote
1: a book about BRAC a couple of years ago and he found looking at the first three uh congressionally approved BRAC, so now you want anything like that. Right. Okay. If um, that's true, I think it is not widely known amongst American Congressmen.
0: <laughs> right. Right, because
1: uh um, right. folks in the Pentagon screaming, we need we need authority to close bases, right? Right. Okay, so there's
0: that.
1: secondly, uh, <coughs> our friend Byron Cowan, who's an investment analyst, is of the opinion that it is expressing the opinion that's difficult, I'm giving this from him that. It may be more difficult, all things being equal, even without this dysfunction within the Congress, to prove another the background in that much of the low hanging fruit right, yep. has been pulled off, and the birds have been done. Yes. And so now we're looking at the rural areas where they have more. Right. Benefits. Right. How, if you're looking to make the case to a congressman, something about policy standpoint, here in Washington. Right. What, what is the argument
0: you bring to somebody in, in Lima, Ohio? Right. Because build it it's building tanks that are then parked in the desert because they're not, not, not a foreign desert, a desert here in the United States. Um, <coughs> thanks for that. Thanks for the insight on the congressional question. There you have your answer. I'm gonna look, I wrote that down. I'm going to look it up. Um, it is true that there is resistance now to the mere process of a BRAC, because people believe that those marginal areas, those areas that would be... Again, one of the criteria that went into deciding whether or not to close a base under BRAC was the ability of the wider community to absorb the losses, which is why Bergstrom was certainly on the, or one of the first lists. Okay? Um, and it's harder now. Uh, I also think that the experience of the last, the fifth and final BRAC round, because it was occurring when a war was going on, and when military spending on the whole was going up, did not really lend itself to good case studies of wise redevelopment, reallocation of resources. Let's just put it that way, okay? So I think some of the, so I think some of the lingering effects, kind of the, the people have, have kind of in their mind that all the f- previous BRAC rounds were as bad as the fifth round, and that's just not accurate, okay? So part of the purpose of this study is to remind people of these earlier BRAC cases. It, it, does, it, it is nothing short of shocking to me how little people remember or understand from the early BRAC cases, including people who represent the district or state in which those instances occurred. Um, New Hampshire, Um, for example. So part of the purpose of this is to kind of remind people this was 20 years ago, and let's look at what actually happened. Um, The last part of the puzzle is, In most cases, even in cases where the military as a whole or a base in particular, kind of military industry, military kind of businesses, represent a very large share of the local economy, even in those cases where they represent the largest shares of the economy relative to other districts around the world, it's smaller than it was 30 years ago and smaller than it was 50 years ago, right? It is shrinking. So that it is easier for communities, all other factors being equal, to adapt just by virtue of the fact that the, that the military sector has shrunk. Okay? So maybe it was a legitimate concern, it was a legitimate concern, to be very very worried about job losses in the, in the early 60s or the early 90s, um, but I think it is less, of a case, less so in most places around the country. Um, and in the few hard cases, I do think, unfortunately, that you're going to have to have some kind of forcing mechanism that kind of compels the members of Congress to, to work together on an up or down vote, yes or no. Um, because all all the fact, at the end of the day, BRAC worked. Nobody really disputes that BRAC worked. BRAC worked in the sense that they closed a lot of facilities and it, re- it generates real savings. Okay? M- we would be spending more today than we are because these facilities were closed. And most people now believe that even keeping the force structure at its current levels uh, it's about a 20% excess capacity here in the United States, domestic capacity. So there is room for another round of closings. Uh, I'll, sir, go ahead. To follow up on his theme, which was slightly off the of track, he was talking about the tent, the tent plant, yes. which
1: happens to be in
0: Congress in Jim Jordan's district. Uh huh.
1: Military contracting and it's well understood that a significant part of the budget is for things the military never asked for to right. do with. Except congressmen yes. to preserve jobs in their district have become
0: military geniuses overnight. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is true. The military is a jobs program. Uh, this is the, the worst kept secret in the United States. This is, we don't have industrial policy, but we do have a military and, and we procure according to what would be the alternative of a, a you know, it's, a, it's an alternative uh, industrial policy. Um, doesn't lend itself to good decisions in terms of the allocation of scarce resources for defending us from harm. Um, what's the alternative though, right? Um, because I'm a little leery about taking away the power of the purse uh, in to- total. So you have the kind of BRAC workaround, right, which is still a workaround, but the authority is still vested in Congress. Um, BRAC was a congressional initiative. Uh, they recognized they had a problem, right? The first part of, of treatment is re- admitting you have a problem, so they came up with a solution. Um, I've heard some talk, and I'm not totally unsympathetic to the idea of having a BRAC process for procurement for precisely the reasons that you say. it's force people to make trade-offs based on kind of the aggregate, kind of get out of their parochial interest or as best you, best they can. But it's tough. I recognize that. Look again, I mentioned I grew up in Maine and, and and um you know we still build Navy ships in Maine. Uh and so while it's true that two bases in Maine and Portsmouth is right across the, the river uh closed um you know the significant drawdown in naval shipbuilding would have an effect in, in Maine. Uh, no question about it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, and I, 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 I say this in my, in my second book, Power Problem, um, the moment people resort to economic arguments to make the case for retaining a military instrument, that's when you know that you, they've, they've run out of good ideas. Okay? Make the case for why something is needed on national security grounds, whether it's a tank, a plane, a ship, a base. Make it on those grounds. The moment you say, what about, and, and it's good for jobs in my district, that's when they've lost me, and that's when they should have lost most people who care about security as, an, as, a, as a concept, a broad concept, not because it's good for jobs in a particular district. <clears throat> Sir, Frank Gavin.
1: Terrific presentation. Um, I was wondering, after five rounds of frack, whether... Imagine the
0: first time it was terrifying, but now we know some things. Right. It's going to be different according to
1: where it is. Then I started to think there probably are arguments and opportunities for some of these bases where you want to be part of the BRAC. I mean, the Bergstrom (laughs) example kind of, we talked about it a little bit, They hints, it worked out really, really well. You can imagine San Diego. Right. There's probably some uh, places that you say, man, I'd love to get my hands on that land and develop it. Right. Is either
0: of that going on? I don't think I don't think there's a template because I think the cases are too different. But I do think there are some best practices, um, and I'm still I'm I'm only about a third of the way in terms of even looking at these cases, and I've only visited not even a quarter of them yet. I, I do plan in the course of this book to visit every single facility that's that's in the that's in the book. Um, uh, one of the best practices I think I, I kind of alluded to this in my closing remarks is to embrace change and that means to make a transition quickly to empower a to empower a body some in some entity to deal with the land okay so you have you have a certain amount of environmental cleanup and that's understood, and the DOD has responsibility for that. but once the land is deemed suitable for redevelopment, hand it over to a to a to a new entity. Sometimes these are Purely private, sometimes they're purely public. Most of the time they're a public-private mix. Okay, So you have representatives of the local community, the city, or the, or the county. Um, but then you have business interests, and they are considering how to make this an attractive place to do business, to build a business, to, to relocate people, etc. Um, and I think that it's particularly interesting to look at the cases that took a very long time and say, again... So the location didn't change, obviously, but, but something changed that made a particularly unhappy story a really happy story over a relatively short period of time. If you Google Brooklyn Navy Yard, um, you're likely to pop up a, um, a, a, an ad, a banner ad, kind of celebrating the success of redeveloping the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And um, and so there are people that want to tell those stories. And I, I'm very kind of open to, you know, what's your explanation for why this worked? Because, again, if it's a, if it's a plant that's been closed for 40 years, close to 40 years, then the, it's like, well, don't tell me why it's working now. Tell me why it didn't work 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and that's, again, that's the story. Again, I think the Brooklyn case has been looked at for a lot of different reasons. Because it's famous and it's... It's in a a hot location. I'm I'm more interested in the Frankfords of the world and a couple of the more obscure cases. I also want to look, I mentioned this, I want to look at the cases. Presidio, people say Presidio is a success. And my answer is, how could it not be? Don't talk to me about, don't talk to me about how it's a success. Talk to me about why it still isn't close to where it should be in terms of the redevelopment potential for that property. I mean, just look at a map. Look at a picture of that place. It should be... It should be just going like gangbusters. And it's been a very, very long process. Uh, sir, in the back. Have you looked at, as a part of your study, to
1: the uh, Army's organic industrial base? So ammunition plants, manufacturing arsenals, and right.
0: I haven't, I haven't, and I might, I'm glad you brought that up, but, but I'm going on the, uh, but to privatize a facility and to leave it open implies that that facility is still, ha- is still vital to the national interest, to national security. And I'm going at it from the perspective of we still have excess capacity, we had excess capacity in the 1990s, we had excess capacity in the 1970s, which is when there were previous rounds of, cl- of closures. And so privatizing doesn't solve the excess capacity problem. It might provide greater efficiencies, maybe, and I'm willing to consider that. But I'm still going on the, on the presumption that all other factors being equal, better for those facilities to actually be turned over to the private sector for private use, not merely managed for the benefit of the, of the army. I Is that your question? Is that what you mean?
1: Right. Military-specific uh, um, output, but also the, the, the argument from the military will always be
0: that this is a national insurance policy for sure. that are required for the, the next big war. Um, I agree, and I understand that argument. Uh, just recently, there was an article published right around the time, so right around Veterans Day, talking about how. So many of these bases have become just kind of ice, truly fortresses, but but not defending from foreign invaders, but protect defending from the local neighbors, and the neighbors have no interaction with these places. Um, the security concerns are so great that uh, it's hard to have a dual. So what you're really talking about is some kind of a dual use, right? Where you have some part of the facility that's being used by private businesses, but how do you get around that security problem? Um, one is to say that the security has been, has, we've overcompensated and we've, made these, we've locked down these places too much, I think that's going to be a really hard sell. Um, which is my understanding is, um, I don't really know that it was the security per se, but there, is, there has been quite a bit of resistance to the concept of dual use. I, I mentioned it in the case of use, they, the, the, city, the city leaders in Austin in the 80s looked very seriously at trying to develop Bergstrom as a dual use facility, and, and they ran into a brick wall of the Air Force every single time. So there's there's a lot of resistance to that.
1: There's a lot, there's a lot of dual-use spaces around the around the country.
0: Give me an example, sir. I'm I'm you know, curious. We use the field between Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's been a dual-use space for years. Okay. The Air Force
1: has it. They have a headquarters on there. They have part part of Space Command on it, and yet the city of Colorado Springs uses the other side of the base as uh, for for a municipal airport.
0: Okay. I like Colorado Springs. I'm going to add that to my list. I like to visit yeah. there. <laughs> Albuquerque. <laughs> yes, Albuquer- Albuquerque is a very good case. Yeah, that's, Al- Albuquerque is a dual-use base. Albuquerque is a dual-use base. That's correct. Right. A, you need to look at because there's a lot of dual-use bases, and it's sort of a phasing out of the military
1: mm-hmm. of those bases where they solely own. And, but now they, all of a sudden they find they don't need the, all the,
0: right. the bases, and they can turn it over to the city,
1: use, use their portion they need,
0: there are ways of securing uh... Actually, you bring that up, and I, I didn't mention this. Pease is still a dual-use base, so they still fly um, out of Pease mainly for refueling missions and things like that. Guard base. It's a guard base, correct? And the conditions of the turnover were that they had to retain that, so that does put some restrictions. Actually, does impose some restrictions on how the, the land can be used. I'm glad for that question. I'm gonna I'm gonna revisit that. I remember Albu- Albuquerque is a good case. I remember Albuquerque now. The military fines
1: are phasing down. Yeah. And you know, they, here again, we can't afford to have all the all the military we need, so we'll phase it down. Turn part of the property over to the uh, the civilians for whatever use. Right. They want, and we'll we'll secure our portion of it, and then eventually, boom, they're out of there, and they turn the whole thing over. Uh, so Look at that.
0: Some good. That's some good input. I'll look at that. Colorado Springs, like I say. I like Colorado Springs. Sir, yes. Go ahead. I'll just add a little bit of that. Pretty much every National Guard flying facility in the country is what we use. Right. So, right. Uh, one question for you on the, the numbers of jobs you're showing up there. Mm-hmm. Your, the civilian jobs lost, are you factoring in the military jobs? paychecks that have gone away as a civilian equipment or are they in the equation at all? Good question. No. When they assess, so that's the the misleading thing about relying on job statistics, right, is that does not capture the loss of economic activity from the spending of the service members. You're absolutely correct. Um, But when a base is closed and those service members are reassigned to other facilities, their labor is not lost to the economy as a whole. It's lost to that region but not to the economy as a whole. So I'm, I'm frustrated when I hear people talk about jobs lost, right? Lost to where? Okay, because when, when a when a company goes out of business, when they stop manufacturing something or, or whatever, then yes, jobs are lost. Some people are going to be re-employed somewhere else and there's a transition effect life, but that isn't the case when military people are transferred from a base that is closed to one that is still open, okay? But that's a good point. Um, the way to do, and again, the presentation is just a very slim snapshot into what I'm to, doing here, but every time I talk about jobs lost, I will also talk about the economic effects, what happened in the, in the economy, surrounding economy, how do you compare that to the baseline, what was going on at the same time, uh, but that's, that's an excellent question. I, I, the la- last, quick last point on this is, there is still, I alluded to this in the, um, when I talked about Dr. Stephen Fuller's research, there is still quite a bit of disagreement among economists in terms of how many times you count that paycheck, okay, right? Because we know the story, the anecdote, right? The, you know, the service member, he has a dry clean, you know, he gets his things dry cleaned or, or whatever, and then he buys a hot dog and the hot dog vendor, you know, all that. How many times do you count that dollar spent in terms of generating activity? Again, I'm not, I don't need to get into that, because the economist's judgment is that it's not quite as many as, as many people believe, that it doesn't have that many kind of effects. But more importantly, that same amount of money spent either in the domestic sector by government or returned to the private sector in the form of reduced tax burden, either one of those has more stimulative effects than the military spending effect.